Hey everyone, I'm Emily. I have been attending Veritas for a while. I actually met my husband here about 10 years ago and um, we have three kids. My oldest is Ruben. He's five. Um, you can find Ruben like tracing dinosaurs or legitimately trying to fly. Um, my middle is Rosa. She just turned three a few days ago and um, she is out of every adult or child or no, she's really fun. She's probably one of the most fun people I know. Um, and she adds a little sass to that fun too. So it makes it even better. And then my youngest is Willa. She's six months. Um, and she was born to about two weeks into quarantine back in March. Um, but unlike most events of this year, she has been a gem. She's been great. Um, so you have actually done an extraordinary thing to be here as well, considering the events of this year. You've traversed an opinionated worldwide pandemic. You found some masks, a bottle of sanitizer, and you survived learning the term derecho, which I realized until a couple days ago I've been saying that wrong. <laughs> Meanwhile, the West Coast is on fire. The always present racism in our country is no longer hidden, and there is a heated election still to be crossed. I don't need to stand here and tell you everything that's going on in this world. And while we can semi-joke about the events of this year, using 2020 as a hashtag for anything strange and out of the ordinary, the truth is we're suffering. The world is suffering. Some of us watching this video are really suffering. We've lost our jobs. We've lost our homes. We've lost our family members. We've come face to face with severe mental illness that's tearing our families and our marriages apart. Working moms have felt the extreme guilt of trying to maintain a job while your kids are maybe under your roof doing school and unspokenly with your help. Um, maybe you're a single woman living alone and the quiet is painful and you're fearful that this new um, feeling of being lonely is your new norm. As a nation, we've seen an increase in childhood hunger and child abuse related to the events of this year. We've seen undeniable police violence while our non-white brothers and sisters cry out for justice, and then other brothers and sisters outcry the outcry, and our church is divided. You wouldn't be alone if at any point you thought, why is this happening, and why all at once, and where is God in all of this? Is he seeing this? Is he here? Maybe your faith is being rattled in a completely unrelated way to, to the events of 2020. Maybe you're still not pregnant. Maybe your adoption is on hold. Maybe your child is sick or recovering from a serious accident. Maybe your dad's on hospice. The notion of a loving God cannot possibly be deduced from the data or the evidence we see around us. And sometimes our realities just seem too big or too crazy for us to handle. And before you know it, all you have is a mustard seed of faith and a lot of desperation. This week in our study, we read about several people that were desperate, many of whom were labeled unclean, and treated as such, the bleeding woman, Jairus's daughter, the Syrophoenician woman, the deaf man, the 4,000 people um, in Gentile territory, and, and healing the blind man. And that's only in this week's portion. We've already seen it in the first couple weeks of our study, and we'll continue to see it in the rest of Mark's gospel. And so in an attempt to bring these stories to life a little more, I thought a mini history lesson on what it really means to be unclean would be helpful. Jewish culture was intensely concerned with appropriate lines and boundaries to classify everything in its proper place. Judaism had boundaries and classifications to organize people, places, times, food, just to name a few. If you stayed within the designated boundary, you were clean. 
But if you went out of that boundary, you became unclean. So we're going to talk about a few of those categories. So we're going to imagine a ring with multiple rings that get smaller and smaller as you get to the center, where the outer ring is holy, but the least holy of that category. And then as you move in, it gets holier and holier until the center is the most holy of that category. So we'll get started. So the category of places. So the land of Israel was the outer ring. It was holier than any other land. The next ring in was the walled cities of Israel. Further in were the walls of Jerusalem. And then it just keeps going and going and going until we reach the temple. And then, so we have the court of women, the court of Israelites, the court of priests. Um, we have between the porch and the altar, the sanctuary, and then the holy of holies, where God's altar and throne are located. So notice how in this category, Gentile territory is not a ring. It's not even on the map. All right, the category of people is really involved and intense. So we're not going to get all the way into it, but for our purposes, it's important to know anyone with a defiled body or a damaged body was ranked last in this category. So the reason for that is because in Jewish culture, to be holy, H-O-L-Y, meant that you were whole, W-H-O-L-E. So if you had a damaged body, so lepers, the blind, menstruating women, you were not whole, therefore not holy. There was this idea that anything that seeps out of your body and leaves its intended compartment, so urine, feces, blood, um, is in leaving its intended purpose, and so it makes you unclean. So even flaky skin, if your skin is flaking off, then it is not in its intended place and doing its intended function, so you are unclean. And you are contamination to anyone else that you come in contact with. So any Israelite, no matter your ranking in the ring of people, can become unclean by just simply being in contact with someone labeled unclean. So there was even a ranking within the unclean group. Um, so the least unclean, so the outer ring was unclean men, followed by unclean women, and then lepers, and the worst of all, the most unclean of all the uncleans were corpses. They were the center of that ring. All right, so we did places, people, and then the category of time will be the last one we'll talk about. And that was um, sacred holidays, festivals. So the Sabbath and Passover are two examples. The Sabbath was the most holy of holy times. And that goes back to Genesis with God rested on the seventh day. Um, so there were specific rules on what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. So in this time, people who continually had contact with lepers, the blind, the deaf, menstruating women, corpses, were labeled unclean, and they were a contamination to the Israelite community. People who show no respect for holy places, such as the temple, are crossing dangerous lines. And people who don't obey the Sabbath disregard the map of time and would be judged in some way as rejecting the system, and just rejecting the system could make you unclean. So right away in the Gospel of Mark, we see Mark announce Jesus' level of purity by including um, what John the Baptist says about Jesus and God himself. So John the Baptist announces that there's going to be coming someone that's even holier than he is. John the Baptist was already a holy prophet, but he's saying someone even more holy than him is coming. And then when he baptizes Jesus, God himself says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So we see this intimacy already happening between Jesus and God, and he's not in the temple when this is happening. 
That's on the first page of the Gospel of Mark. And according to Jewish religion and culture, Jesus would be expected to follow all these purity laws and avoid all contact with uncleanliness. He would be expected to respect the lines and boundaries of the Jewish map of places, people, time, food, etc. Yet we find a description of Jesus pretty early on that seems to trample on all these lines and boundaries of uncleanliness. In this week of study alone, Jesus comes in contact with a bleeding woman, a corpse, the sick, the deaf, the blind, therefore disregarding the map of people. Also in this week, Jesus travels to Gentile territory, disregarding the map of places and exposing to himself to all sorts of uncleanliness. Jesus hosted mass feedings, did not wash his hands, did not consider um, food cleanliness rules, and he even uses his own spit to heal a blind man. So spit left its intended compartment to heal a blind man. And Jesus' critics pick up on this pretty quickly. They conclude that because of how he's interacting with all these unclean people, he must not really be the son of God. In fact, he's showing so much disregard for all the rules, purity rules, that maybe he's actually from Satan. He must be on his team. But interestingly, after Jesus draws the demon out of the, ma- out of the man in chapter 1, the demon himself testifies, I know who you are. You are the Son of God. And when he does the same thing in chapter 3, like we saw last week, he teaches the crowd he is not of Satan. He is actually the stronger one that will bind Satan and defeat him. So the image of Jesus as a holy person is starting to be defended. Not only does he show power over demons, but he heals the leper and the sick and the blind and the lame and never actually becomes defiled or unclean himself. And this week, Jesus continues to show himself as a holy person, but still not in the way the Israelites thought he should. So let's jump into chapter 5 with the story of the bleeding woman and Jairus' daughter. So starting in verse 21, we see Jairus, a synagogue leader. He was a respected religious leader, but he was desperate. His little girl is on the brink of death. And now we know that death means not only would you become unclean um, because you are a corpse, but anyone that would be near that corpse or touch that corpse would also become unclean and you would no longer be considered holy. But Jesus' reputation is spreading, maybe with the rumors of Jesus healing the withered hand like we saw last week another unclean person that Jesus heals. So Jews, Gentiles, and even demons are drawn toward Jesus and are desperate for a miracle. Maybe they are starting to understand that by his actions, his words, and his perceived fulfilled prophecies that he holds power and authority that can heal. Jesus is starting to knock down boundary lines made by the Jews, purity boundary lines, cultural boundary lines, religious boundary lines. His power is not only for the Jewish culture or the people of Israel, but for anyone that sees themselves desperate and in need of a king. And Jairus is one of those people. So he runs through the crowd, falls at the feet of Jesus, and the text says he implores Jesus, saying, Would you come? Would you do something I cannot do? I am helpless. I am hopeless. Would you come and touch my daughter? And Jesus, in his mercy, begins to head towards his house. So the crowds are growing and they're pressing in around him as they go to see yet another miracle. But as they're heading that way, some woman equally as desperate starts to make her way through the crowd. She's unconcerned about other people because her situation is also serious and grave. This woman has been living under the weight and bondage of an illness that made her an unclean outcast in society. For 12 years, she's been labeled unclean and condemned to isolation. So we have two people 
Jairus and the bleeding woman, who are desperate. Jairus is the father of a little girl at the point of death, and the woman has an incurable issue with blood for 12 years that no doctor can cure or even subdue. It says in verse 33, she came in fear and trembling. She knew she was unclean and she should not be out there. She hoped to pass by unnoticed and slip back into isolation so as not to infect anybody else. Yet we see the bleeding woman reach out and touch Jesus' garment, even though to her understanding, it would make Jesus unclean as well. So what gave this woman the courage to act despite the indescribable burden and risk upon her? And what pushed Jairus to implore Jesus despite what his religious synagogue friends may have said? I believe our faith is often prompted by desperation. The Lord calls us to these places, and some of us are there right now. At some point, we learn there's no amount of strategy or treatment that can solve these problems. We are at the bottom. We're desperate, and we need God to intervene. Desperation prompts our faith. Jesus welcomes a desperate posture before him and a confession that, Lord, please come, because I cannot do this on my own. You have to do it, so please come. I remember one of my best childhood friends telling me that she wished she had a better story, she would say. I always laughed at her because she had two loving and supportive parents. She was close with her siblings. She lived in a nice house in a nice neighborhood. She was the all-star athlete at school. Her parents made sure that she had everything that she needed. So whenever she'd say this, I'd laugh at her. But what I think she meant was that she wished she had a reason to be desperate, something that propelled her towards Jesus. But the thing is, you don't have to have a hard situation or a messy life to be desperate. You just have to understand the gospel. And as early as Genesis, we see that we can't do it on our own. We can't measure up and we never will. We are cursed, we are ruined, we're unclean, and we are desperate. So in the bleeding woman's desperation, she runs through the crowd just to touch the garment of Jesus. And when she does, it says in verse 29, immediately the blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So Jesus is en route to Jairus' home and all of a sudden he stops and asks a seemingly silly question, who touched me? He scans the crowd and eventually the woman breaks through the crowd and confesses, it was me. I knew you were my only hope. I've been to every doctor and not only did I not get better, I got worse. And I knew you alone could do this and you did. This woman had shame written all over her life. She reluctantly came forward and she heard these comforting words, daughter, my favorite part of this story. And the only time Jesus calls anyone daughter in the four gospels. How comforting that must have been to a shameful, unclean, unworthy woman that's been terribly lonely and hiding for 12 years to hear those words from the king. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Now go. Desperation prompts faith, and faith moves us toward Jesus. It pushes us through the crowd to Jesus' feet, confessing, I'm tired, I'm weak, I can't do this on my own, and I know you can. Now, this story is great, except for the guy named Jairus, right? <laughs> Not only does Jesus detour from Jairus, a wealthy, important man, but he detours to address an unclean outcast, nonetheless an unclean woman. And while Jesus heals the bleeding woman, news breaks that Jairus' little girl just died. It's too late. She's gone. Do you think in that moment Jairus felt angry at God? You took too long. I needed you to come now or at least quickly. And you detoured. It's your fault. And there starts to be this little conversation on the side. 
Don't even bother the teacher anymore, they said. I mean, he's greater than nature. He can cast out the demons. He can heal the paralyzed. He can disarm disease. But death? Death is just too strong. Death cannot be reversed. Not only is death too final, but all good Israelites know that touching a corpse is the worst of the worst things and if you want to remain pure and holy. But Jesus, overhearing this conversation, says, Nah, we're going. And so he goes into the house and says, Why are you weeping? She's not dead. She's only sleeping. And the mockery turns to amazement as people are astounded that this little girl who is dead is now walking around. And Jesus says to get her something to eat. <laughs> I don't think it's a coincidence that Mark intertwined the story of the bleeding woman and Jairus' daughter together. We see Jairus, a good father, a loving father, desperate for his daughter on the brink of death to be healed and come back to life. And almost like a mirror, we see Jesus refer to the bleeding woman as daughter. The story of Jairus shines a light on Jesus' heart as our good and loving father. Jesus is our good, loving father that is desperate for us to be healed. He implores us to run to him and fall at his feet. While our desperation propels us toward Jesus, Jesus' desperation propels him toward his heavenly father by way of the cross, his reason for coming, to make us clean. On the cross, Jesus died and became a corpse himself, the ultimate uncleanliness. However, Jesus' death did not pollute, and his bleeding body did not separate him from other people. Instead, Jesus gives up his life to give life to others, and his blood actually takes away all uncleanliness and atones for the sins of many. As we break down these purity guidelines and rules, don't let the deep emotion attached to it go unnoticed. We still have those secret places or people or things that we consider unclean, making us believe that we're disqualified from the touch of Jesus. We can be so quick to fake it and smooth things over and pretend everything is staying in its proper place. We can put on a brave face on the outside, but inside we're all scrambling to make it seem like everything is staying within its boundaries. But things can't stay buttoned up and perfect as much as we'd like to pretend they are. Your failing marriage, your addiction, your sexual sin, your control, your loneliness, your judgment— we don't need to hide our uncleanliness and live ashamed because it's actually those very things, those things that bleed out of its perfect compartment, those are the very things that invite us to run towards Jesus and fall at his feet and implore him to be clean again. And then through his atoning sacrifice on the cross, he calls us daughter, he washes us clean, and he sets us free from the hold of shame. So let's go one step further with the story of the bleeding woman. The story of the bleeding woman is in the middle of chapter 5, and if we move over to chapter 6, in verse 56, it says, Wherever Jesus came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. Where did people get this idea? This idea that if you run and implore Jesus, or even if you just touch the fringe of his garment, you may be healed. I don't think it's a wild guess that it might just be from the bleeding woman. The word continues to spread, and what I want to touch on is how our suffering, while it teaches and admonishes us, it also changes the lives of those around us. We see this in our testimonies, which is why it's so important to share our personal stories and spread the good news. We also see this played out in the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. We see a large crowd of people who are hungry with no food, 
we see a little boy come forward with a basket barely full of five loaves of bread and two fish. One disciple even asked Jesus, what good is this little amount of food for this huge crowd? But then as we read the story, we see Jesus not only feeds the crowd, but more than satisfies them. An example of how our broken pieces are not only about ourselves, but somehow, mysteriously, they're often for others as well. I read a quote about this little boy who shared his lunch that said, If my life is broken when given to Jesus, it may be because pieces will feed a multitude when a loaf will satisfy only a little boy. We can run to Jesus with our brokenness and find encouragement in our testimonies because our stories are not our own, but instead they are stories about the power and authority of Jesus. And the light of Jesus in your story needs to be shared and known because it might not be just for you. Now, is anyone like me in that you didn't fully realize that the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 were actually two completely different things? At least, I thought it was something of a repetition, like Jesus healed several blind people and cleansed several lepers, and you tell the story many times. But the way that he builds between the 5,000 and the 4,000, I think, is intentional. When Jesus is in Gentile territory to feed the 4,000, he obviously just fed the 5,000. But the disciples are just as shocked. Now, I can be hard on the disciples and just kind of roll my eyes, but I think there's more there. For the 5,000, he was in Israel, and it made sense to them that the Messiah would provide fullness to satisfy the children of Israel, the Holy Land. But he does it again when he crosses the Jordan into Gentile territory. These are not God's chosen people, and yet still Jesus provides provides for them. The same miracles weren't supposed to work for these people. Jesus has to explain this to them again in chapter 8. You see, the numbers 5 and 12 represented fullness and completeness to the Jewish people. 5,000 people and 12 baskets were left over. But then the unexpected turn, the numbers 4 and 7, represent fullness and completeness of the whole world. 4,000 people, 7 baskets left over. So Jesus reveals he's not just come for the people who read the five books of Moses, who are in the 12 tribes of Israel. He also came for the four corners of the earth seven days a week. And it's not irony that Jesus broke bread to feed a multitude of people. Another image of why he came, to suffer and be broken for us, our neighbors, our friends, and our enemies. Jesus didn't come to bring bread, but to be the bread. It's Jesus' broken pieces that heal our broken pieces. And the idea of a holy land or a holy temple is thrown away because our temple is now Jesus' risen body. So now everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, unclean and clean, strong or weak, can draw near to the throne of Jesus. The Jews measured holiness in terms of proximity to the temple, and now Christians measure it in terms of proximity to Jesus. While all of these stories are great stories about desperate people being healed and receiving the gifts of a miracle, this isn't always our reality, is it? We all can probably think of a time we felt lost or desperate and we don't see the miracle. In the Bible, there were hundreds of people in the crowd that didn't actually get the miracle. I will never forget a statement from a friend of mine. This friend and I shared the devastating circumstances of watching our moms suffer through chemotherapy treatments. We often shared stories of fear and could empathize with each other. A few years ago, after fighting cancer for nine years, my friend's mom passed away. I met with her to cry with and empathize with her again, and she said these honest words to me. 
I will never understand why God miraculously saved your mom and not mine. My stomach still thinks when I think of that moment. I was speechless, and to this day, I don't have an answer for her. I think so often in the midst of pain and suffering, it can seem that Jesus is either in the boat with us, but just doesn't care, like we saw last week with the storm in chapter 4, or he's just absent altogether, like the storm from this week. If you noticed, in verse 47, it said that Jesus was standing on the shoreline. So Jesus is not actually in the boat when the, when the waves arise. But in the following verse, it says Jesus was watching them. It says, he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. Even when we can't see Jesus and maybe we begin to question his whereabouts, he still sees us. When we're fighting cancer and suffering and we don't understand why, Jesus does because that's why he came to suffer, to suffer in order to redeem, to take our broken pieces and redeem them. Redeem doesn't always mean no more pain or death, but it means he is with us. He sees us. He's in our boat. His nearness can start to heal us. It is our security. We're not adrift in chaos, no matter how it may seem. We are held in our good father's arms, who calls us daughter, gets in our boat, and calms our fears. And notice in verse 50, Jesus calms the hearts and minds of the disciples before calming the storm. I think this is intentional as well. What we see is often not the problem, or at least not the point. The raging seas, the uncleanliness, the brokenness, miracle or no miracle. Jesus often uses these things to get our attention, but they're often not the point. Jesus is saying, yeah, I know the storm is raging, but it cannot defile you. All those rules you have about what you eat and how you wash what you eat, it's not important. What's more important is your heart and your mind because what comes out of you can defile you. So we see Jesus first calm the storm or I'm sorry, first calm the hearts and minds of the disciples by saying the familiar words from the Old Testament, it is I, do not be afraid. And then he calms the raging seas that surround them. We can trust and believe in our God in the midst of pain and suffering when we understand it's not the absence of these things that is our greatest need. But our greatest need is the nearness of Jesus, like Rebecca also mentioned last week. In our homework this week, we read Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. What in our hearts needs a touch from Jesus? Or what thoughts in our minds do we need Jesus to purify? May we be women that see our brokenness for what it is, and then may we be women who run through the crowd to Jesus, fall at his feet, and implore him to take all our broken pieces and do with them what he will, trusting that it may just feed a multitude. And may we be women that trust and believe that in doing this, we will begin to see Jesus more clearly now and in the new heavens and the new earth when we see Jesus face to face, when he calls us daughter and leads us to our spot at the table, where he offers us his broken body so that our brokenness, our shame, and our suffering might forever be made clean. Amen.